Hey everyone, welcome to Emmanuel Fellowship's podcast. This is Pastor Trent, the founding pastor of Emmanuel Fellowship, a church in South Minneapolis that exists to serve our city and to live for God's glory. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We pray that this message encourages you to follow Jesus and to see his presence and power everywhere in your life. There's a great leadership thinker, um, at least in the Christian world, named John Maxwell. and He says that there are two ways to walk into a room. Only two. You can walk into a room and basically say, I'm here for you. Or you can walk into a room and say, you're here for me. I'm here for you, or you're here for me. Now, you might not say that aloud, but by the posture of your heart, by the subtle mannerisms that you have, by the things that you're seeking, there is some truth here, that we can walk into a room and say, I'm here to serve, or I'm here to be served. I'm here to contribute, or I'm here to consume. Now, it's really true that like when you're serving, you can be receiving. I mean, I received some gifts from the Lord just as I was singing there, and I was trying to serve you all. But but that was a blessing to me. And it's true that Jesus did say that it's, it's more blessed to give than receive. So there's There's a blessing that comes even when we're giving, contributing. But there is something of truth here. And I wonder, how do you tend to walk into a room? Have you ever thought about that? What is my posture of heart when I walk into a meeting at work? How about when I go to a family gathering? Or when I come to church on Sunday? Or show up in my gospel community on a Tuesday or Wednesday night? Am I here for them? serve, or are they here for me? Now, I've noticed over the years something interesting, and it's this, that that the I'm here for you versus the you're here for me dichotomy um, has a bit of truth to it, but, but, but mindset matters no matter where you are, no matter what your role is, or no matter what your stated position is. Like, like for example, I've met interns who have very much a you're here for me mindset. And I've met CEOs who have an I'm here for you mindset. It doesn't quite matter where you stack in terms of hierarchy, authority, position. Often what matters is the state of your heart. Your position doesn't predetermine your posture, right? There's a mindset that you can choose. Now, and this may be hard for you to believe considering that that much in our world at present makes many cynical about authority, distrusting of those in position. Whether that's inside the church or outside the church, one of the challenges that we face right now in our world is what to do with those who have power, with those who have position or authority. And so for Christians in positions of authority, the call is really clear when it comes to the way of Jesus, that like we must learn how to walk in the way of Jesus who said, hey, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's Mark chapter 10, verse 45. And this is how the Apostle Paul walked into this letter. Have you noticed that? This is a letter written by Paul, and we are, we're almost like a whole chapter in. We have not heard anything about Paul. 
We don't know anything about him. He is totally focused on the church and on their Savior, Jesus, for 24 or 5 verses here. And then finally he gets around to go, oh yeah, and by the way, here's my role in the matter of this. Here's who I am and what I come to contribute to your church and to the churches more broadly. Paul, in his posture, even in the writing of this letter, aims to serve. But he does have a very crucial role. And we learn about his role in these verses. There's three things that I want to show you. Because the Apostle Paul, the writer of this letter, has never been to see these people. He's never seen them face to face. But he did get to see this guy Epaphras face to face. In fact, we likely believe that he led Epaphras to Christ. Epaphras believed and then got trained and grew in the faith. Then even perhaps got commissioned and sent back to his hometown here in Colossae to share the gospel with them. Not just in content, but in character. He started living for Jesus in his own hometown. And people started noticing about what he was saying and how he was living and the difference that Christ had made in his life. And so Paul here, completely removed from the church at Colossae, now is writing to them to encourage this young church to grow up toward maturity. But they have to know a little bit about Paul. And so if you want to wrote a map, if you're a note taker, if you just need to know, hey, I need to know where you're going, here's what we have. We have Paul's suffering, Paul's stewardship, and then Paul's summary. That's our three points. Paul's sufferings, his stewardship, and his summary. So let's look at his sufferings. Here it is, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. In my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church. Okay, this is kind of confusing. Right? I mean, how is Paul suffering and filling up what's lacking in Jesus. I'm pretty sure he just wrote this incredible gospel hymn about all the sufficiency of Jesus and how amazing Jesus is as the king of creation and the king of all redemption. He's the one who by the blood of his cross can reconcile anyone, even the most gutted enemy of God, he can bring into the fold. And then Paul comes here and says, oh yeah, I'm feeling what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. It seems off. We know from what Paul's written here and other places in the letter and other places in the New Testament that in no way does Paul think somehow Jesus is deficient or somehow that the work of Jesus needed his supplement. He needed his protein shake, right? No, like Paul is not saying that at all, right? What he's saying here is that my suffering is for the sake of the church. What's his suffering? But what happened when Paul showed up to Ephesus, which is likely the place where he's writing this letter from, is that sheer revival broke out. He showed up teaching in the streets, the synagogue, and in the marketplace about Jesus. And so many people came to faith in that city that the entire, entire portions of their economy got disrupted because they had manufactured all of these idols, these statues, and various trinkets, of course, that helped with temple worship, and then made household gods acceptable 
and available to all who are in the area. And when Paul shows up, those guys pretty much go out of business because the gospel has gained so much ground in the city. It's turning the entire tide of that city and its culture on its head. And moreover, incredible spiritual acts start happening. Paul is traveling around and he's doing works of healing. People are flocking to him like they flock to Jesus, trying to even just like touch his, his robe in the hopes that they might be healed. It's, it's incredible, almost hard to believe. And then what happens, of course, is that the local authorities clamp down. The business owners rise up. Paul gets thrown into jail locked up there. And then at one point he gets stoned and then leaves and then somehow survives and comes back into the city to preach again. Like, it's, it's crazy town for the gospel going forward. That's what's happening there. Epaphras saw it and he went to take the news to his hometown. But now Paul is suffering in jail, locked up, unable to move, unable to teach. He's held there suffering for the cause of the gospel. And what he believes is the benefit of the church more broadly. Because as he's held there in captivity, all of a sudden God starts to work far beyond Paul. And Paul goes, hey, this actually isn't about me. The gospel is bearing fruit. It's growing even without any of my involvement. This movement moves without me. Because Jesus, the head of the church, is leading it forward. But he says... It is my joy. I rejoice to be able to suffer for the advancement of the gospel. It's like he's identifying so with Jesus that Paul is feeling the growing pains of the Christian movement. He's experiencing the birth pangs of a new congregation started and coming to life, bearing them in his own body, as it were. It's not that Jesus' work needed to be filled up and made better. It's that there's inevitable opposition that comes with the advancement of the kingdom of the beloved Son. As we saw in verse 13, chapter 1, the domain of darkness rages against it. That's what's happening. What gets at in these verses is the real opposition that the kingdom of Jesus faces. That's what Paul is talking about. That the kingdom of Jesus has an enemy. In verse 13, it said, of course, that, that, that he has delivered Christians from the domain of darkness and transferred them into the kingdom of his beloved son and we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. But it doesn't mean that the domain of darkness has gone away. It's still here. And Paul is saying that it's having an effect and it's, and it's creating opposition for this fledgling Christian movement. There is a real challenge and opposition that the movement of Jesus faced then and it faces now. I don't know if you know this, but some of the best, best and brightest Christian thinkers are sort of waxing eloquent right now in the podcast world and the blog world. Are blogs still a thing? Uh, like, not a thing. Podcast is all there is. Just talking blogs now. 
Um, but they're trying to creatively and critically think about the changing culture of the West, particularly in America. And, and while I feel like there are real valuable insights to evaluating culture and the shifts that are happening in our own society and more broadly in Western culture, I have sort of mixed feelings about it because on the one hand, I'm a geek. And so like, I would love to geek out and go like, okay, I wanna think about this. And like, how does that affect the strategies that a church has? How does it affect an individual Christian in the way that they can live for Jesus? Like, how do we need to troubleshoot, problem solve, and find a better way forward? And like, I, I, I kind of get into it. And then on the other hand, I'm like a bit perplexed because it, it feels like it, it smells so much of the culture that we're in, almost a cultural mindset rather than a biblical one. I mean, just hold on for a second. I mean, what sounds more Western than highly specialized information that only experts can talk about and then figure out? Using their own platforms, which are divorced from a local context or people, in order to share that highly sensitive and technical information. What also sounds more Western than, or maybe more on trend, than for us to come up with the newest technique that might yield us better results? It just gets so complicated to live for Jesus in a changing culture. I mean, think about it. Information overload? Technique mania, anxiety about simple things. Is this the way of Jesus? It's not the way of Paul. The way of Jesus, friends, I, I can assure you it is narrow, but it's not overly complicated. When Jesus said we could love our neighbors, he expected we could know what that means. Not be stumped up all the time about how specifically I've got to figure out how to love so that I, I might not, not offend you. Like, Jesus has a narrow way, but not an overly complicated way. And I think there is a challenge of living in a world that is opposed to the kingdom of Jesus. One that we cannot erase, and that every time and every place has its unique opposition to the forward progress of the gospel. This week, one of my children fell asleep in the car. Um, and I don't know about you, but like, there's something really special about like falling asleep while traveling, especially for kids. I think it's the closest that we get to teleportation in like the human experience. Cause it's like, <laughs> you know, like they fall asleep and all of a sudden, bam, I wake up, you know, and like I'm at home. And like, if you wake up in a, you know, an unfamiliar place, especially for one of my children, it can be like really disorienting and kind of confusing and it becomes a big deal. But if you wake up in a familiar place, like say daddy carries you up and then puts you in your bed and the next morning you're just like in your bed. I have no clue how I got here, but like I'm here. Like it's a normal day in my house. It's sort of a fascinating experience for a kid. Um, but I've noticed that the problem for Christians in our time, for the children of God, is that in many ways we've expected to wake up at home while we're still traveling. Christians, as it were, sometimes believe that we can wake up in this life in all the familiar comforts of home, 
rather than in some of the disorientation of what it means to be on the road and from place to place. And there is really no getting home for a Christian here because home is there. Paul's already said we have a hope laid up for us in heaven, which means that if we try and erase some of the opposition or the disorientation of the world in which we live in that is against the kingdom of the beloved son, it means very much so that we have misplaced expectations, we've forgotten about the journey, or we've redefined home as something that's not really home. But Paul is saying we live in a world where there is opposition. And to be a Christian means we have to figure out what to do with it. How do you respond if you consider yourself a Christian to the opposition of Jesus? I mean, certainly there are some of you who would not side with Jesus here this morning, would say, I'm not sure I'm all in with who he is, or perhaps you might want to disagree with him or dissect and take a bit or pieces of him. But for those of you who genuinely consider yourself a Christian, there are some healthy and unhealthy ways to respond to the opposition that the gospel faces. And think about this. A more worldly response to opposition would be to react. It would be to react and say, you know what? I quit. In face of the opposition to Jesus, both personal and cultural, you could react and say, could even reason and say, it's not worth standing for Jesus or identifying with Jesus anymore. At least not publicly. At least not in relationships. You could be quiet. Could react to the opposition that Jesus faces and say, actually, I'm going to reason that in face of the opposition that I could have personally or just culturally, it's better for me to be quiet about Christ. It means you'll pass on real opportunities to live with Jesus and live for Jesus. Or perhaps you could say, in reaction, I need to be quarrelsome. And in function by the opposition to Jesus, you'll try and meet it with a much more combative than compassionate posture. Perhaps battling over things that are more periphery than what is in the center. You see, we can easily react when we face opposition for being a Christian. What does Paul do? Now certainly this can't cover all scenarios or situations, but what does Paul do? See, rather than reaction, the more heavenly response and the one that Paul models here is passion. Now, when I say the word passion, perhaps you think of like, energy, excitement, living for dreams, going for it. And certainly that's one of the ways that passion is used um, now today. But, but passion, at least in the biblical sense, in passion of the Christ, means something far more robust. Because passion is literally that posture of Jesus that the writer of Hebrews says, where he's for the joy set before him, willing to endure the pain of the cross. Passion, according to um, Chip Dodd, who's worked in recovery ministry for the last several decades, passion is willing to hurt for something. Which the Apostle Paul is willing to hurt for something, for the progress of the gospel. He's willing to be in chains so that the gospel might move forward 
unbound. Listen to what Chip Dodd says. He says, passion means, a, it means fully participating in life. It's a willingness to be in pain for something that matters more than pain. Passion assumes that one accepts, or even sadly or grudgingly, that doing what matters entails very, very hard days at times. Sometimes days are full of confusion or doubt or failure or fear or struggle or even times despair. But passion is the energy that allows one to carry on in the midst of the above-mentioned inevitabilities. It neither assumes success nor ease in the endeavor. Don't you see Paul here? Paul neither assumes success nor ease in his endeavor to spread the good news of Jesus to the known world at that time. There are moments where it, it carries forward and catches fire spreading rapidly. And there are other moments where he is pulled back and even incarcerated. He's willing to suffer to see it go forward. He has a passion of Jesus that he learned from Jesus. Now Paul's stewardship. We've seen his suffering, but let's look at his stewardship. Verse 25 continues and says that he is filling up for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which the church is what he has become a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The history, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Paul says, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God. That's right. The stewardship from God that was given to me for you. Paul's saying, hey, I feel this responsibility, this stewardship for you, that God is the one who gave to me. And what he's saying here is that I have a responsibility, I have a charge that is for you, even though I've never met you. There's a unique calling on my life as an apostle that means I serve as a manager in God's house. Now we get on to what he's called to do as that manager in a second here. But I want to think about stewardship. Stewardship in this context means the management of a household. It's this sort of responsibility and oversight. And if you're thinking in the ancient world, this person was an incredibly significant one for a wealthy household. I mean, they were the CEO, the CFO, the COO of the family enterprise. Think of Joseph. Remember that story of Joseph? from Genesis, where he gets promoted from jail, all the way to be the right hand of Pharaoh. He is the manager of all of Pharaoh's house and all of Egypt. It's this position of stewardship and responsibility that's incredibly powerful. And Paul is saying, I have that stewardship for the churches in my time. What he's saying here is that I am a physician of authority and responsibility, and I use it to serve, even gladly suffer 
for the sake of these communities. Now, I haven't made it all the way through. I don't think they're actually through it. The new series, Bel Air, right? The remake of Fresh Prince. Anybody watch first episode? Okay, so I'm, I'm kind of into it because like, Fresh Prince of Bel Air takes me back to my childhood. Like that was, I watched that all the time growing up. And like, I just, anyway, there's a connection there for me. But, but Joffrey is, or Jeffrey is the, um, he's the manager of the house. He oversees the entire estate. Everything that's going on there. And with the remake of this series, trying to make it like feel a little bit more real life, um, his role has shifted a little bit. And this is fascinating. I read this quote from the new actor who's playing the role. His name is Jimmy Akimbola. And he says, this is the shift. I always say that for me, the original Jeffrey was the suave Roger Moore type James Bond. But in our version, He's more Jason Bourne. <laughs> He's like the Jason Bourne manager of the house. This sort of like confident, in charge, overseeing all, protecting the family name, and being about the family business. That kind of role is what Paul is saying he plays. And I would say that Paul is a Jason Bourne manager. Like Paul is like, hey, they threw stones at me and then I got up bloody and then I went back at it again. He's like, I'm wandering shipwrecked and then I'm coming back for you. You know, like you just can't get rid of the guy. And um, he, he, he just seems relentless, um, willing to suffer and serve all the way through the end of his life. But notice, he is not overseeing a mansion in Bel Air. He's overseeing the riches of God's house. He's overseeing something far more precious, far more glorious than anything that could be material or physical. He's looking after the household of God. And what is his calling as the steward? Three things. Said three ways to say one thing. Watch this. All different words in the original language, a little bit different phrasings in the English, but it functions as a repeat for one purpose for him as the manager. He is to make the word of God known fully. He is to reveal the mystery, meaning to bring it to light. And he is to make known or declare something is true. Paul's calling as the household manager of God in his time was to say, hey, I get to spread this news of the incredible unfolding mystery of God's glory and grace, now far surpassing the people of Israel, the Jews, and made available to all of the known world such that people from every tribe and tongue and late and nation could find themselves reunited and reconciled with their maker. He has this incredible charge. He holds this glorious mystery, stewarding it in his work. There's a time in my life where I felt the weight, even the riches of something, unlike I'd ever felt before. It was um, when I bought an engagement ring. I don't know if any of you have done that, some of you have, but when you hold what for me at the time was the most expensive thing I'd ever purchased, right? And when you think about the question you're about to ask, 
And you think about how weighty that is, not just for this moment, but for the rest of my life. You start to like feel, I mean, I remember like feeling it in my pocket. The whole day, I had this whole plan laid out with letters and activities and this wonderful spot. Like, I can play the song. It was, it was great. But I remember feeling like the burning weight in my pocket of this ring, you know? And, and, and to be honest, all that has faded away because I don't look at the ring the same way I do. But the weight of the person whom I now love, hold, serve, that has not faded. And for Paul, he is holding in his hands or in his heart the riches of his glory, feeling the weight of it in his own fragile, broken vessel and wanting nothing but to share it with others. This is the story that all history has been waiting for. It's the, the light that shines in darkness. It's the truth that's been pondered for ages and now made It's all about Jesus. And Paul is stewarding that message, trying to advance it in his own time. Paul's suffering, Paul's stewardship, and Paul's summary. Now listen, you might not be stewarding the same thing that Paul was, but you still hold that riches, that glory, if you believe in Jesus, in your own mind and heart and story. You carry that. And so what I want to do is help you see what you carry. Because the Apostle Paul, in the span of about six, seven words, summarizes the entirety of his gospel message and the gravity of it. What is the mystery? It's Christ in you the hope of glory. We could turn that phrase over for a long time. And I would love for you, if you're in a gospel community, those are our small groups that meet, I would love for you to turn that over in that setting as well and think, what does it mean that Christ lives in me? That this infinite riches now resides in me. I mean, let's turn that over because because there's something when we believe that, that, that the living God now has taken residence within us by his spirit, that we hold the most precious, the most valuable thing in all of existence, not just here, but in the entire universe within us. The culmination of God's work and story in the world carried forward by the Holy Spirit with that, that's here. That, man, that changes your Monday. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and for sure your Sunday. It changes your life when you live as if Christ is with you, in me. But that's not the only sense in which he's talking about. In fact, it might not even be the primary sense. That's the way that we read it because our initial read is always individual. But his initial read was communal. He was speaking that the church which had demonstrated this love for all the saints, this growing affection and faith in the Lord Jesus, has somehow been, according to a different letter, Ephesians, been built brick by brick into a living house in which 
God himself dwells by his spirit. That somehow in the bringing together of these disciples of Jesus, there was a unique and a powerful dwelling of God. He was with them. Church, I believe the Lord's with us. I feel that when I'm with you all. The Lord is here and here uniquely. I feel that in my gospel community when the Lord shows up as we gather. And to tell you the truth, if you read through the New Testament, the times when God shows up, and, and it's really palpable that he's with them, are usually not individual, they're communal. Right? This is the end where Jesus is about to ascend. Right? And he gives them that great commission to go and make disciples of all nations. And he says, I'll be with you all. I'll be with you always. The gathered disciples carrying forward as a stewardship this gospel message. Or think about, think about the church praying, fasting, waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't an individual endeavor. It was a community of faith waiting with expectation, praying faithfully, and then God shows up beyond their wildest dreams. Time and time again, the Lord meets his people such that they know God was here in our midst. My prayer is that we would have that. And there are some Sundays you will come to church where it feels ordinary, but there are some Sundays we come to church where it will feel extraordinary. And no matter how it feels to you, what we believe is God is there at work, doing slow work, patient work, or doing profound and shifting work, moving tectonic plates of your life. Christ in you. And what does it produce? The hope of glory. This has been a theme all through this first chapter, that the church could actually hope about its future. That they could have like, like ropes connecting a ship to the port. Like, like ropes connecting the sails leading it forward on the sea. They could have these lines, as it were, tied to glory such that they could live in a world that's often broken, sometimes dark, with hope. That's what Paul says this message brings about that you have been reunited to Jesus, connected to your creator and your redeemer, and brought into a community of others who have had the same profound experience. And, and, and you together then get to encourage one another of the hope of glory. That's why the New Testament writers say, gathering as a church is not about us individually, primarily, but when we get together, we encourage the faith of others. Like when I see someone here at church and see them worshiping, I'm encouraged. Like when you see someone here in gospel community, like sharing about their wrestle with the Lord about this issue, you can be encouraged. Like there is this anchor for the hope of glory <laughs> that happens when the church is together encouraging one another in the faith. So like in, in summary, what I want to do is pray this into reality for us, family. That you could look at a brother or sister in Christ and say, I see Christ in you. And my hope of glory is all of a sudden risen to fall. 
you could see it, the church gathered together and I said, I see Christ there. I'm anchored back into the story. That's truly ultimate reality. After having gone out, gone out my weeks through the world and being tempted to buy into another story, now I'm brought back to the hope of glory. 